0: Right, it is December 27th, and that means in just a few days, 2020 is over, and all God's people said, Amen, let's go home. Right? Um, well, like, as we always tend to look forward to a new year around this time, because new years represent uh, a time where we can reflect on what's to come. Uh, it signifies a sense of renewal, it feels like a reset of sorts. We make resolutions. Uh, this year, probably more than any, we're looking forward to 2021. Um, now, last week, Gary shared some funny descriptions of the year 2020, and because I like to beat a dead horse, I've done and looked up the same. So, uh, here's just a few more for your enjoyment. Uh, in, uh, back in early December, uh, Twitter asked all of its followers to describe 2020 in one word. There were a ton of responses, uh, several from some big Uh, from some big-name companies. Uh, Netflix responded with, why? YouTube said, unsubscribe. Uh, Software company Adobe got a little clever and said, Control-Z, which is the shortcut for undo on your computer, if you didn't know that. So let's undo 2020. Lego said, ouch. Put a little foot emoji and a picture of a Lego brick. So all of you parents out there probably get that one. Uh, But my favorite wasn't a one-word answer at all. Someone put together a little video montage of daily annoyances. And some of those daily annoyances included washing your hands but getting your sleeve wet, Uh, dropping your Oreo into the cup of milk as you're trying to dunk it, Uh, accidentally rinsing all the toothpaste off of your toothbrush as you run it under the water before you've gotten the chance to actually brush your teeth, Um, all you glasses wearers out there, picking up your glasses by your lenses, uh, uh, or, or lastly, uh, stirring the sugar in your tea or your coffee so hard that the, all of the contents kind of spill over the side, and then just placing the wet spoon into the sugar bowl. Uh, all, all those daily annoyances, like, hmm, 2020. Uh, of course, we could go on forever because we've all come up with clever ways to show our disdain for this past year. It's been filled with so many, well, of course, they were unexpected, but... But huge things, uh, huge things that affect our daily lives, and we're we're all just thinking, man, 2021 has to be better, right? Um, as as I tend to do these New Year's messages, I tend to be the last one up here at the end of the year, looking forward to a new year. I tend to look for something that's going to maybe encourage us uh, as we head into the new year, or 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 charge us with something to. To, to dedicate the next year to bringing us closer to the Lord in some way. Uh, this year would have been real easy because uh, we we're, were starting this campaign where we want to read the Bible in 2021. I could have talked about the importance of reading your Bible as a spiritual discipline. Um, and that was where I wanted to go at, at first. But uh, when Damon preached a couple weeks ago from Luke 2, there was something that just stood out to me from the Christmas story and as he preached perhaps what we need for 2021 is a little more Christmas. Um, now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that uh, 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 that you need to keep your Christmas decorations up all year or that you continue to listen to Christmas music in July or you wear your ugly Christmas sweater uh, in February when it gets cold. People might think you're a little strange if you've got your ugly Christmas sweater on in February. Um, in fact, Michelle can testify to the to the fact that I'm one of those people who, I, I don't like to put up Christmas decorations, I don't like to listen to any Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. That's just kind of how I go with things. She'll, she'll ask, hey, can we listen to this, or can we maybe go ahead and start decorating? I'm like, no, we've got to wait till after Thanksgiving. Uh, except this year, because 2020 just felt like we needed to start that celebration early. So we had our sunroom decorated, and we were listening to Christmas songs and singing Christmas songs well before our Thanksgiving vacation. Um, it just seemed like we, we needed a little more, a little more Christmas. Uh, but that's not exactly what I mean by having a little more Christmas in 2021 because Christmas is so much more than decorations and singing and, and gift-giving. Um, what I mean is that the Christmas story is filled with the hope that we need to sustain us through periods of turmoil. Certainly 2021 was a year that was full of turmoil. And we enter into 2021 that's a year filled with uncertainty. And what we need is hope. And our hope isn't in the vaccine. It's not in the economic stimulus that might be coming our way. or um, It's not in political harmony, which we would all hope for probably. Uh, but our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of salvation is what the world needs even though it doesn't know that it needs it. The hope of salvation is what the church needs to persevere hard times. The hope of salvation is what I need just to get out of bed in the morning. The hope of salvation is what we need in 2021. So after Damon's sermon, I sat there with my Bible open to Luke 2. And we had read the familiar account of the shepherds uh, hearing the pronouncement of the Savior's birth from the angels and the shepherds visiting Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Yet we usually don't read Past verse 20. Uh, Our family reads from Luke 2 on Christmas morning, probably like many of uh, the other families here. Um, But we stopped at verse 20. We don't tend to include the incredible story from the temple in in verses 21 to 38 that Bill just read for us. In most renditions of the Christmas story, we're likely to include the angel Gabriel's visit to Elizabeth and Zechariah. Uh, his visit to Mary later on in Luke 1, and then in, in, in Matthew 1, he visits Joseph. Uh, we include that familiar passage from Luke 2, 1 to 20. Uh, and then we just sort of jump right ahead to the story of the Magi in Matthew 2. So why do we leave out the story of Simeon and Anna? Maybe you don't. Uh, perhaps it's just, Perhaps it's just me. Maybe I just perceive it that way. But either way, it doesn't seem to be a very popular part of the Christmas story. We don't see Simeon and Anna as part of your nativity scene, though we do include the wise men. Um, But maybe we should. Put out little Anna and Simeon figurines with your nativity scene. But it's the testimony of two people who saw their hope of salvation realized right there in the Christ child. The hope for all humanity in that tiny little body. And before we jump into to the passage here, let's set the scene of where we are in Luke 2. Um, Mary and Joseph, who live, live in Nazareth, they're in Bethlehem to participate in the census. Why were they in Bethlehem? Because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem was the city of David. So David's descendants had to go to Bethlehem, each to his own city. David's uh, ancestral home, Bethlehem. And if you missed Gary's sermon last week, I highly advise it. he totally highlighted the importance and the role of Bethlehem in the birth of the Savior. Is Jesus' birth in Bethlehem God's providence? Yes. Only Joseph would have been required to register for the census. Mary didn't have to come along with him. Um, Perhaps she knew that she was about to give birth and, and wanted to make sure she was by her husband's side in case that happened, they were in Bethlehem. Either way, we don't, we don't know why Mary went with, uh, with Joseph to Bethlehem, but we knew, we do know that by God's providence, the Savior was born in the city of David, just as Micah had foretold. So the baby is born. There's a joyful visit from some shepherds. The res- registration for the census was complete. Shouldn't Mary and Joseph have returned to Nazareth? Well, Bethlehem happens to be only six miles south of Jerusalem, and there are several things that one has to do in the, uh, uh, old, to fulfill Old Testament law to, when, there's a, when there's a birth. There are some requirements there, so it just makes sense to stick around and might as well get those things done in the temple in Jerusalem since we're here. Um, so perhaps that's why they, they didn't go anywhere. Um, so in our first few verses, we're going to see that Mary, Joseph, along with Jesus... Fulfill three of the Old Testament requirements of the law. Uh, now we're going to be—I'm going to be referencing the Old Testament a good bit. Uh, you don't have to turn there each time. I'll just—I'll just read those for you. You can stay camped right here in Luke two. But let's—let's uh, let's read verse twenty-one. And it says, "And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb." So this first one's pretty familiar to us. We have. Eight days after Jesus is born, he's circumcised according to the instruction that the Lord had given uh, Abraham in Genesis 17:12, which says, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. Now, though the circumcision of, uh, and Mary and Joseph's obedience is important, the emphasis that Luke is placing uh, is on the naming of Jesus. So we see that Mary and Joseph are not only obedient in circumcising Jesus as they should have. Uh, but they were also obedient to the instruction that the angel Gabriel gave them to name their son Jesus. In Luke one thirty one, he told Mary, "And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus." And in Matthew one twenty one, he had visited Joseph, and he told her, "She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." The divine purpose of Jesus is right there in his name. Jesus means Yahweh. Saves. He is the Lord's salvation. Um, it might be a bit strange if Mary and Joseph had decided to go a different route with naming Jesus. Um, the next two law requirements kind of run alongside each other in verses 22 to 24. So let's read through them all and then we'll, we'll separate those two out. Uh, verse 22 says, And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So uh, here our setting seemed to shift a bit. Uh, Perhaps the circumcision had taken place in Bethlehem and now now they were heading to Jerusalem uh, uh, for... uh, for Mary's purification and Jesus' uh, consecration. For, um, so the, those, um, I'm sorry, so let's, let's look at the first one. Mary's purification actually comes from Leviticus chapter 12. and Mary would have been considered unclean following the birth of a child, uh, so she needed to fulfill the law's requirements in order to be purified. Leviticus 12, uh, verses 2 to 4 say this, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her administration she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. So according to this, uh, our, where we are in Luke 2, that this is going to be 40 days uh, uh, after jesus was born that 's thirty three days after his circumcision. Notice that it said that she wouldn't have been allowed to uh, uh touch any consecrated thing or enter the sanctuary so uh, she hadn't been in the temple she 's just now going for the first time after the forty days um, If she had given birth to a girl all of those uh, all those length of times would have been doubled. she would have been considered unclean for fourteen days after his birth and then it would have extended all the way to eighty days before she could uh she could do the uh Uh, the purification so that's what verse 5 tells us and then verses 6 through 8 in leviticus 12 tell us what must be done at the end of those 40 days in order to be purified when the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering then he shall offer it before the lord and make atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. So we can conclude from our passage here that Mary and Joseph would have been considered poor. They couldn't afford the lamb. So they, they offered the sacrifice of a poorer couple, right? The two young doves or two pigeons. Luke doesn't distinguish which one, but just to indicate that they, they weren't uh, uh, they weren't wealthy enough to to sacrifice a lamb, so they they chose the two birds. But we still see that even though they didn't have much, Mary and Joseph made sure that they were obedient to the law, even if they could only offer the two birds. Uh, now there's a little bit of a troublesome passage in not passage phrase in verse 22, and it says. Uh, it says their purification, when the days for their purification. Now, Mary was the only one that was required to, uh, uh, that needed purification. So, who is the they referring there? That indicates more than one person. So, is it Jesus or Joseph? It's possible that Joseph could have been defiled by his unclean wife since they're married, but that's that's less likely the case. Probably what's happening here is Luke is using the word purification to refer to both, uh, both things that need to be done in the temple. Mary's purification and Jesus' consecration. So, um, so that's most likely what Luke is using that phrase for. Um, so then Luke goes on to say that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So the consecration of the firstborn, we would find that in Exodus 13:2, which says this, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And in Numbers 3, verse 13, Moses gives us a reason why the Lord uh, requires this. So it says, For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel. From man to beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. So why is all this here? Why, why all these temple rituals? Why are they in the Christmas narrative? Of course, one reason would be that this, this helps place Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the temple when Simeon comes along later. I think there's further meaning here as well. They show Mary's and Joseph's obedience to God. One, one commentator pointed it out this way. He said, Luke's focus remains clear. He's presenting Jesus' family as obedient to the Lord, unquestionably pious. Thus, number one, they circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. Two, they gave the child the name mandated by Gabriel, and they acted according to the law with regard to, number three, purity following childbirth. Four, bringing Jesus to Jerusalem to be presented. And number five, offering the sacrifice for Mary's purification. These, quote, normal occurrences are laden with narrative purpose. Redirecting attention to the plan of God. Revealing again that Mary and Joseph are willing supporters of God's aim. Certifying that Jesus will operate from within God's purpose. But Then again, we also need to ask, if Jesus was without sin... And he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Was all this necessary? Well, yes, it is. Because of verses like Romans 8, 3-4, which says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, uh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And again, in Hebrews two seventeen, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for, our, for the sins of the people. And again, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 say, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. All of these verses remind us the importance of Jesus' humanity. In order to make full atonement for sin and to fulfill the law, Jesus must be human in every way, placing himself under the law, fulfilling all of its obligations in order to be the proper sacrifice that was needed to redeem mankind. He had to do these things. So we finally get to Simeon. Mary and Joseph were at the temple. In verse 25, uh, uh, Luke tells us that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. All that we know about Simeon is what Luke tells us in these next few verses. The first thing that stands out is that Luke calls Simeon righteous and devout. So Simeon was of excellent moral character. By righteous, it means he behaved well towards other people. By devout, it means he behaved well towards God, fulfilling certain religious duties that were required. Um, Last week, Gary had mentioned that before Jesus, God's people had lost all hope. There had been 400 silent years since they had heard from God through the prophet Malachi. He had made a covenant with Israel, and he had promised them that he would send a Savior, but it had been an agonizing 400 years, and not a single word from the Almighty. It wasn't a joyful or fruitful time for Israel either. During that time, they were under uh, four different foreign powers. The Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, and the Romans. Again, no prophetic word from the Lord. So needless to say, most of Israel had lost all hope, That God would come and save them, but that doesn't mean that all of the Jews had lost hope. There seems to have been a small remnant of faithful Jews, of whom Simeon was a part, who eagerly anticipated the Messiah. Luke describes Simeon as quote looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, the Greek word translated as consolation here means it means comfort. Consolation is the only right here in Luke is the only time consolation is gets translated. Uh, but every other occurrence, it, it seems to be referring to comfort, uh, uh, the comfort of Israel. And Luke's wording here, uh, it ties very closely to the Messianic prophecies that we find in Isaiah. We're, we're actually going to see a lot of correlation between this narrative with, in Luke with Isaiah. Um, but listen to these verses. Isaiah 51.3 says this. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. And again, Isaiah 61-2 says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So again, I'm going I'm, to I'm reference Gary's sermon from last week, but that's because his was the theme of hope, and today we're talking about the theme of hope, and they tie so closely together. But he explained that there are two advents, or two comings, of the Lord Jesus. In 2 Peter 3 17 to 18, Peter says that we ought to be on our guard so that we're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from our own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, Peter here is referring to being ready for the Lord's second coming, but isn't this, Simeon, a great example of someone who was ready for the first coming of Jesus? He stayed devoted to the Lord. Throughout this hopeless period, he never lost hope that the Lord would bring salvation to his people. Simeon was among that faithful of Israel. Uh, but there's more. There, there's more to the story of Simeon here. Not only was he looking for the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to Israel as a whole, but Luke reveals that Simeon had a personal revelation from God. And that revelation was not simply to reassure Simeon that God was still going to send the Savior, No, it's more personal than that. Look at verse 26. It says... Here, let me turn over. Um, It says, "...and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit had told Simeon that before he died he would see the Messiah." We already saw from verse 25 that Luke says that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and now we see that Simeon has direct revelation from the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's work in this story isn't over. The Holy Spirit is a major theme throughout the Luke-Acts narrative, which, of course, is a part one, part two. And its importance here not only provides credibility to Simeon, but also illustrates God's providence. As both we see the law and the Spirit, working in tandem to bring about this encounter in the temple. The law had brought Mary and Joseph with Jesus to the temple, and the Spirit would lead Simeon to the temple at the same time to fulfill his promise to Simeon. Verse 27 says, And he, Simeon, came in the Spirit into the temple, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. So it's all coming together. What joy must have come over Simeon as he laid his eyes on his Savior? Imagine waiting your entire life for something, and it finally happens. Now, most of you in this room and watching online, you know that I'm a big Clemson fan. And a few years ago when they won their championship, I I thought I would never see that day. Uh, The only other championship they had won was way back in the year that I was born, and they were stuck in this place of mediocrity. They weren't among the elite in college football or anything like that. It just seemed like a big, massive mountain to climb that I would probably never see. But on that night, I think it was like four years ago, I was so excited when that finally happened. It finally came true. I was, I was ecstatic. But what about like Chicago Cubs fans? If you know anything about their his- history, they won the World Series way back in 1908, and then they wouldn't win, a- win another championship or World Series until 2016. That's 108 years. Uh, you would quite literally have Cubs fans who would be in their 90s maybe even over 100 years old, who had never, ever seen their beloved cub- Cubbies win a championship. And they had been waiting their whole life for it, and it finally happens. What joy must have come over those fans on that night. And, and this is just sports. Now, I love sports, but let's be honest, sports, it's, it's just a game. Here, Simeon had waited his entire life for the Savior of Israel, God had even told him personally that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then on this faithful day, there he is. How does Simeon respond to laying his eyes for the first time on his beloved Savior? Look at verse 28. Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. He's basically saying, Lord, now I can die in peace according to the promise you gave me. I can die peacefully knowing that the promised Savior has come. And the language here is a bit like a slave being freed from his duty. Simeon would have been on watch in the dark, deep, dark night Looking for, looking for the Messiah. And then he finally comes. He announces the arrival, and then he's dismissed. Simeon's work is done. He announces Jesus as the Lord's salvation. He proclaims before those around him in the temple, including Mary and Joseph, that this is the promised one of Israel, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord's salvation. No doubt Psalm 130 would have been Simeon's lifelong prayer. The song we sang earlier, I will wait for you, is based on Psalm 130. And Simeon wouldn't have had the Gettys rendition of that, of course. But can't you imagine Simeon singing the words of Psalm 130? Let me read them to you. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now this salvation is not only for Israel, as Simeon declares. He says that the Lord's salvation was prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people Israel. Light and salvation here in this context have the same meaning. Um... As one commentator put it, the salvation that Jesus brings is light, or it gives revelation to the Gentiles, for they're receiving it for the first time. In its glory to Israel, the Jews already had the divine revelation, but awaited the manifestation of the glory God had promised. Simeon's song borrows heavily from Isaiah, as I mentioned before, and its vision of salvation. Just listen to some of these verses and notice how it parallels with Simeon's song. Isaiah 40 verse 5 says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Chapter 46 verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. 49.6 I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 52.10 The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And chapter 60, verse one, arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Uh, There's a promise fulfillment response that goes on in these passages. Um, So in verse 25, you see Simeon's looking forward to the consolation of Israel In verse 26, God makes a promise that he's going to see that consolation of Israel. And in verse 30, he does indeed see God's instrument of salvation. Also, in verse 26, Simeon wouldn't see death until he saw the Messiah. In verse 29, now Simeon's ready to die, having seen the Lord's Messiah. And again, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. In verse 29, it happened because of the Holy Spirit according to the word of the Lord. Notice, too, that even Mary and Joseph, who were well aware of the miracle that laid in Simeon's arms, were amazed by what Simeon had said. But Simeon isn't done speaking yet. He turns to Mary, and in verse 34 or 35, he offers a prophecy. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to, to, the, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So I mean, delivers this word of prophecy to Mary, but what does he mean that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel? It seems that he's referring to two groups of people here. One group will not acknowledge Jesus as the Lord's Christ, and therefore they will fall. They will be destroyed. Their hearts will be revealed. The other group will, will acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, and they will rise. They will be lifted up along with Jesus. Simeon foretells that conflict is going to arise among God's people over the person of Jesus, and that conflict will even touch Mary's own soul. Uh, now, it's unsure what he's referring to there. Is he referring to Mary's own sadness as she sees her son hanging on the cross due to, uh, as a result of this conflict? Or does it speak to Mary's own stumbling over who her son is? Uh, we can't be sure. But again, we have similar language to Isaiah. Uh, Kurt read these verses earlier in chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. It says, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone, to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Uh, and they, then they will fall and be broken. And also in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. He is both a stumbling stone and a cornerstone. Many will rise and many will fall because of him. And now we get introduced to Anna. We don't learn near as much about Anna as we do Simeon, but what we do learn is important. Let's read verses 36 to 37. says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So the first thing we learn is that Anna's a prophetess. Uh, which is a rare title. Judaism only uh, recognizes seven women in the Old Testament as prophetesses, so she's among an elite group. And as a prophetess, she would have given revel- God would have given revelations to her. So she's yet another credible eyewitness to the Messiah, alongside Simeon. We also know that she's mu- a much older woman. Uh, now, there's confusion about whether or not uh, Luke is saying she's 84 years old right now, or if she was. A widow for 84 years after her husband died. Either way, that puts her in the upper range of age. Luke does refer to her as being advanced in years, so she's a... that she never left the temple, serving in prayer. So like Simeon, she too is a devout Jew, and there's no doubt that the two of them were part of that small, uh, same small remnant of Jews who had remained faithful and hopeful of a coming Messiah. And now probably because she does know Simeon from that same group, she approaches him. Verse 38, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were for, began to speak to him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So her response, it isn't portrayed as being over the top. She simply gives thanks to the Lord she thanked the Lord for sending the Savior. There's no indication that she received the same revelation that Simeon did, that she would see the Savior before she died, but she knew of the promises that God would send a deliverer. Um, she wouldn't know whether or not she would see him while she was still on earth, but she knew he would come because the Lord had promised it. And there he was. She gave thanks. And then she began to tell the rest of that small remnant of faithful Jews, All that she had seen. That she had seen the Lord's salvation. The Messiah. Jesus. In the arms of Simeon. Lied hope. Hope had come. The long awaited Messiah was here. The Lord promised a savior. And the Lord gave us that savior. Anna, Simeon and others. Of the faithful remnant. Knew of the passages that foretold the coming of a deliverer. And when they saw him. They knew. They knew it was him. Their hope was realized. And what, what they had hoped for had become reality right before their eyes. Living in the midst of so much hopelessness as Simeon and Anna did, they lived their lives upon the hope of the Lord's salvation. They awaited the advent of the Messiah, and they were blessed to see it come to pass. But remember, as I mentioned before, there's, there's two advents. There are two advents of Jesus. The first advent brought about salvation for all mankind. And we live now in what's known as the messianic age at the time between the two advents of Jesus. Uh, We live in a present reality where the Lord has sent his son to this world. He did indeed die on the cross and rose again as the atonement for the sin of mankind. And thereby, anybody who places their faith in Jesus, they're forgiven. And as John 3.16 says, they will not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know that this morning? Have you placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation? It's what Simeon and Anna eagerly awaited for, and you can have that right now. But there's also a second advent. Jesus promised that he would return. In John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, so I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21, uh, we're told that when Christ returns, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. As Simeon and Anna placed their hope in the coming Messiah, we place our hope in his return. Uh, Last week, Gary gave us a definition of biblical hope. He says, Biblical hope creates an emotional reservoir that we draw upon in hopeless times. 2020 has certainly felt hopeless. Earlier this week, I, I asked our staff, in our staff meeting, um, what they were looking forward to most in 2021, these were some of the responses. No more COVID. To be able to hug one another once again. Here, you know, here in the church, to greet one another. Normalcy. Longing for normalcy sounds like hopelessness to me. In these times, the hope of salvation, the hope of Christ's return, the hope of eternal life, ought to be that emotional reservoir for us. Draw upon God's promises in these certain times. He promised a Savior and he gave us a Savior on that night in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. He's promised that he will return and bring us home to glory. He will surely do it. My prayer for 2021 is is that, uh, that we would see that hope realized of Christ's return. How glorious would 2021 be if the Lord returned? Like Anna and Simeon, we would behold our precious Savior face to face. And uh, as we head into 2021, people are placing their hope in a lot of things. People are hoping in a vaccine, they are hoping in political parties and candidates. There are, our hope isn't in civil unity, where our hope isn't in any of those things. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus. The passage Gary shared with us last week from Titus 2. Is a great picture of how we ought to live in 2021. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify For himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Are you looking for the blessed hope? Are you anticipating the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus? Lord, we wait for you. And he says in Revelation 22, Yes, I am coming quickly. What a promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Dear God, we are thankful that you are a God who saves we praise you for your faithfulness in the fulfilling of your promises. Just as Anna and Simeon long to behold their Savior and eventually you bless them with that sight, we long for Christ's return to behold our Savior face to face. But Lord, until that day, we pray that you would help us live our lives bringing glory and honor to the name of Jesus, looking and longing for the blessed hope. We pray that the blessed hope of Christ would sustain us in 2021 and we pray for your glorious return. We know that you will. It's in our Savior's name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.